from Stanford University and KZSU. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. A set of large, life-sized, head-shaped cookies. Hi, this is Sara Sisson. Um, it's about, I don't know, like a little after 7, 7.10 in the morning on the day I'm going to be life-logging for the Stanford Storytelling Project. So I just woke up. Like, just like, oh, I'm gonna go back to sleep for a little while. Okay, fine. Okay, 7.30 a.m. Okay, it is about 7.50 a.m. I have to be quiet because my roommate Anna is still asleep. It's 8 o'clock. I am brushing my teeth. That was an excerpt from the Stanford Storytelling Project's low-tech stab at a life log. For one whole day, Sara, a student here, volunteered to update a digital recorder every 15 minutes with her whereabouts and whatever else was on her mind. For one whole day, or as long as she was awake. Advanced life loggers go much, much further. They take snapshots with miniature cameras or film constantly. They record every telephone conversation, save every email, and log their heart rate, blood pressure, and other bodily functions minute by minute. Some even go so far as to track their location with GPS. All this to ensure that no detail of life slips through, that no conversation gets forgotten, no day goes undocumented. The most dedicated envision a future of total recall, every moment recorded and stored in massive hard drives that will soon rely upon like second brains. They make promises like this, guys. Hi, my name's Andrew, and this is my head. And inside of that head is a brain, which sadly doesn't grow very much anymore. And that's a problem, because there's so much stuff, from people to things to experiences, that I want to cram into my brain that it's a little overwhelming. In fact, I feel like my memory is pretty maxed out, and then I'm filtering out so much more than I'm allowing in. Well, Evernote's going to change that. With Evernote, I'll be able to remember Promises not so far-fetched when you think about all the saving and recording we already do. The future, as lifeloggers see it, has nearly arrived. The kinks are being worked out as we speak, and total recall is almost upon us. But should we welcome this? Where's the proof that more memory equals more happiness? Sara's single day of lifelogging was a pretty big hassle to sort through. And lifeloggers, who do much more than just record their voices, still haven't devised a way to manage all the information they record. That's why forgetting is so important. Forgetting is what consumes the insignificant every instant without our even realizing it. If we couldn't forget, we wouldn't be able to make sense of our lives. The raw data of it would overwhelm us. So we have to forget. But we have to remember too if we want to tell the story. And when we really need to remember something, we flag it, mark it in our memory, a note to self, preserve this. Notes to Self come in many forms, and we're exploring a few of them on our show today called Just That, Note to Self. I'm Charlie Mintz, and this is the Stanford Storytelling Project from 90.1 KZSU Stanford. Our show today in four entries. Entry number one, Guinea Pig B, an experimental case of one human being in the world's most astoundingly comprehensive diary. Note, statistic not verified by Guinness. Entry number two, Guinea Pig F, Founding Father Ben Franklin's selective self-fashioning and the note to self he could never finish. A conversation with Stanford American Literature Professor Judith Richardson. Entry number three, life logging in blank verse. 
Preserving an Imagined Past with Poetry from Stegner Fellow Kirsten Anderson. And finally, entry number four, note to self, look back at this and laugh. Heartbreak, angst, and poetry that probably should have stayed in the drawer. Assistant producer Dan Hirsch visits a public journal reading and relearns that old equation about tragedy plus time. Those four stories plus updates from Sarah's life log throughout the show. Like right now. All right, it's uh, about 9.30, and I just left the house. I grabbed an orange to take with me to the art department, and now I'm heading over there to work on this giant drawing project I'm doing. It's 9.45. I just got into the art studio, um, so I'm going to start working on my drawing. It's 10 a.m. I'm working on my drawing. Okay, it's 10.15. I'm still drawing. Okay, it's 10.30. Uh, I'm still working on this drawing. Okay, it's uh, 10.45. I'm still drawing. I'm thinking about art after the end of the world. Entry number one, guinea pig B. A simple analogy for the listener. There are pools and there are lakes. There are benches and there are stadiums. There are scrapbooks and then there is Buckminster Fuller's Dymaxion Chronophile. Your host reports on a singular case of self-documentation. I'm leaving traces of myself everywhere. Traces in things I make or pick up or items given to me. Traces of myself in thousands of everyday objects. Little notes from myself reminding me where I've been and what I've done. I notice this most acutely when I'm saving things and when I'm throwing them away. And much is easy to throw away. Ticket stubs, pamphlets, candy wrappers, class essays, binders of notes, even birthday cards, old mix CDs, even some gifts after a few months or years. But some things I can't imagine letting go. Letters from friends and family, certain photographs to ones I've taken or ones given to me. And I'm saving my sixth grade notebooks with my first stories for the day when I'll look back into them and try to figure out who I was. So, how do I know if I'm saving the right things? Every item is a piece of me, after all, and don't I want to save as much of me as I can? There's no better case study for this question than R. Buckminster Fuller. Fuller, or Bucky as he was known to his friends, was a 20th century Renaissance man, creator of the geodesic dome, think Epcot, and an intellectual icon in the 60s and 70s. He was prodigious. He wrote dozens of books, published papers on architecture, science, design, global hunger, housing shortages, politics, and even once gave a 42-hour marathon lecture called Everything I Know. This is, the, this is the real news of the last century. It is highly feasible to take care of all of humanity at a higher standard of living than anybody has ever experienced or dreamt of. To do so without having anybody profit at the expense of another, so everybody can enjoy the whole earth, and can all be done by 1985. He was also the creator of a mind-bogglingly comprehensive diary. From 1917 to 1983, more than 60 years, he undertook an experiment to document his life. The only way to do this, he decided, was to save everything. 
He would put all of his manuscripts in the archive, all sorts of telegrams, letters between exchanged between him and his wife, business cards from people that he would meet along his travels, sometimes travel schedules, little bills, napkins that he was... Uh, my name is Xiaoyuan Chu, and I was the assistant curator for the Fuller Archive between 2004 and 2006. Birthday cards, cards from children in schools, the random hotel receipts, every piece of correspondence that ever came into him or that he sent out. Newspaper clippings, and keep in mind that this was before we had email, so everything really is in a hard copy. He called the Dymaxion dynamic, maximum, tension, chronophile. And by the time it was finished, it stretched over 1,300 linear feet. That's roughly one quarter of a mile of filing boxes stretched end to end. It's the largest collection Stanford owns, and one of the biggest personal archives in the United States. I wanted to know more about the chronophile and its creator, so I found an expert. Xiao Yun was the assistant curator for the archives for two years. She spent countless hours with its contents, and help dozens of visiting scholars navigate their way through the labyrinth of boxes containing bills, letters, and sketches. She made some interesting finds in the process. A set of large, life-sized, head-shaped cookies. And she learned more about the details of Fuller's life than she'd probably ever know about another person. But after two years, she still hadn't gotten the whole story, and she realized she probably never would. I think after a while I became overwhelmed, you know, because I could sit there for, you know, hours and hours and I wouldn't even be able to get through three, four boxes of his work. So I realized that I would never be able to get familiar with the whole archive. I don't think anybody ever has. She comes to Stanford almost every Friday to continue her research in the Fuller Archives. On one of those Fridays, I met her at the library and got the story of the chronophile. The first story is the foundational story, the creation myth. The story goes that he was standing on the shores of Lake Michigan. It's the story of how Fuller, the Renaissance man we know him to be today, came into being. And he sort of had an epiphany. It's 1927, and Fuller is on the verge of suicide. He was sort of visited by a, a voice. He wanders out to Lake Michigan and is about to drown himself. A voice uh, that uh, said to him, you know, if you're really that worthless, right, if you're so worthless, then clearly you're not even worth killing. So, you know, why, why not, you know, just save yourself? And why don't, if you're so worthless, why don't you devote yourself to um, being an experiment, uh, to seeing how much one individual, one, you know, poor little guy can do on behalf of all humanity to make the world a better place. That is how Buckminster Fuller became guinea pig Bucky. An experimental case of one human being. Uh, so with that in mind, the archive for Fuller became almost like a laboratory notebook. It became a way of recording uh, this lifelong experiment of his. And so all of these uh, uh, pieces of paper, all of these uh, manuscripts that he was writing on were sort of like data points of this lifelong journey that he took. According to Xiaoyun, the chronophile is a weird mix of modesty and hubris. Fuller thinks he's worth nothing. But then again, if he's saving everything, he must think he's worth something. 
he probably began saving documents around 1917, but the collection was not named the chronophile until a decade or so later. Fuller considered it part experiment, part research archive. When he started the chronophile, I wonder if Fuller imagined that, years later, researchers would still be pouring through this collection. If so, he would have been right. The Fuller Collection, which contains extensive audio and video documentation of Fuller's life as well, is one of the most frequently accessed special collections at Stanford. But the chronophile was not just an impressive set of documents. It offered something more for Fuller. Validation. I would suggest that this was also, uh, the archive was also important maybe as a source of pride, if not a self-aggrandizement. I think that um, uh, keeping this large and enormous archive became really a source of legitimacy for Fuller. I'd never thought of this before. When you're saving the smallest traces of yourself, the you that's making the traces has got to be pretty substantial. Otherwise, why bother? Fuller, for all his guinea pig Bucky modesty, did presume that someone would actually want to look through these things once he was gone. Still, Fuller in some ways kept his privacy, because for all the chronophile contains, it does have one noticeable absence, the absence of Fuller's internal life. I think the picture of Fuller that emerges is quite complex because um, it's hard when you're digging through all this ephemeral information to get a clear picture of what he was really thinking. Um, it's not like a personal diary in which you're writing your innermost thoughts. In fact, you might say that as a diary, it's somewhat impersonal, right? It's a whole collection of sort of business letters and notes, and he's never exactly pouring out, you know, my, my thoughts, my feelings at this particular time are this. Um, but, you know, he was an, an insanely busy person. I don't exactly know how he kept up his energy to do all the traveling, collaborating, business meetings, uh, letter writing, uh, advising of students that and, and lecturing that he actually did. Uh, so maybe that's why he didn't even have barely the time to indulge in <laughs> worrying about what he was what he was feeling. Even if he wasn't pouring out his heart into a diary, Fuller does show his human self through the letters he writes. The chronophile contains an incredible volume of letters written and received by Fuller. Actually, incredible volume is an understatement. The chronophile contains over 200,000 letters, probably about 10,000 times more letters than everyone I know, myself included, will ever write. The great thing about that kind of volume is the sense you get of who Fuller was when you look at them. A genius, a tireless conductor of business, a bottomless reservoir of ideas, and a human being with flaws and jealousies. I think in the earlier part of the chronophile, probably when he's exchanging letters with his wife, that's probably the time where you get closest to his own emotional reality. Also, you know, he had arguments with people. There are arguments about attribution. Um, some people have accused him of, of sort of stealing their work and sort of bringing it in under, underneath his own umbrella. And I think to some degree their, their claims may have some legitimacy to them. So, for example, seeing Fuller write, you know, kind of mean letters to people saying, you know, you, you have no idea what you're talking about, you know, this is all my work, you get a more nuanced picture of him. He was a human being after all. 
so there's a sense of fuller the romantic in the early sections. And elsewhere you can see him being just as petty and fallible as anyone else. But I had to wonder if those are just glimpses surrounded by thousands and thousands of pages of impersonal junk. I asked Xiao Yun if the chronophile was accurate to who Fuller was. The life contained in a quarter mile of boxes. Does that have anything to do with the life that was actually lived? I think the archive is quite accurate to what Fuller was and how he was because if you listen to some of his speeches, he is very, very uh, kind of almost overwhelming in terms of the amount of information. He's, he's copious in his lectures. I think he probably would have said that he, he set himself the bar of comprehensivity, right? So he wanted it to be comprehensive. And in order for it to be comprehensive, he had to stick by that principle. You know, everything is equally important. Everything is equally, has an equally valid place, uh, you know, within this, within this particular archive. And over the course of a lifetime, that will amount to, you know, over 1,300 linear feet of papers. So in saving himself, Fuller was actually being himself. More than the revelatory power of any one document, the chronophile itself is faithful testament to the man's life. He was an experiment, and he wanted to see what would happen if he took on the unimaginable task of documenting a life as fully and accurately as possible. And that's why it's not something anyone who isn't living his or her life as an experiment should try. Does it make you think differently about all the scraps of ephemera that pass through your life? It actually made me want to throw more of them out <laughs> because um, uh, I think that um, I, I kind of, I sort of looked at it in a different way. How can I really make sure to conserve that which is really, really most important to me uh, and sort of let the ephemera fall to the wayside? One interesting thing about self-documentation is that nowadays, um, you know, a lot of what you're doing is going to be engraved uh, in your computer. So, for example, we'll have archives come in nowadays which are nothing more than a stack of CDs containing full email correspondences, uh, you know, over a decade or so from different people. I sort of dream about taking all the full, fuller archive and, uh, you know, sort of scanning it all and into a series of, you know, 100 DVDs, which would be a a whole lot more space efficient to store than what we have now. It just seems like a nicer testament to someone's life though if it's a series of boxes. If you're going to compare what you leave behind, you know, for future generations, a stack of CDs or a third of a mile of boxes. Yeah, again, like I said, for from a research standpoint, it can be a little frustrating. But yeah, I mean, I I do think that it it does show just how many relationships, how many things he was involved in at any given time, you know, how the world became somewhat smaller, uh, you know, because he, he touched so many parts of it. So the days of Fuller-like monumental archives are coming to an end. From now on, even the most prodigious among us will leave behind nothing more than a stack of CDs, dozens and dozens for the grandest, and one or two for the rest of us. But maybe, at the end of things, we can have both. 
Without tangible items, I think a life's record is incomplete. I want to save the physical because I've touched it, and there's no digital substitute for that. If I have my choice, my email, my writings, my pictures, those will all be on CDs, on top of the notebooks, the smudged photographs, and old letters I've saved. Entry number two, guinea pig F. More than a hundred years before Fuller ever glued his first newspaper clipping, Benjamin Franklin was figuring out how best to preserve his own life. His answer? Turn himself into a literary character. Assistant producer Dan Hirsch learns the story of our lovable founding father as he himself wrote it. Seven, sincerity. Use no hurtful deceit. Think innocently and justly. And if you speak, speak accordingly. Franklin begins writing the autobiography in 1771, and he's in England at the time. And he's there, he st- goes over to take care of some Pennsylvania business, but he winds up staying on there um, as he's dealing with, he's kind of acting as an ambassador uh, as the events that are going to lead to the revolution are starting to roll on. But while he's there, uh, he decides to take on this project of, um, writing down this memoir. He's directing it to his son. It starts, in fact, as, with the line, Dear son. It's written as a letter. So he's addressing it to his son uh, and saying to the son, uh, I thought you might like to have these events of my life, uh, in part because they might serve as a model to you sometime. You might find yourself in this situation where they'd be suitable to imitate. So that's the first part he's doing in 1771. Dear son, I have ever had a pleasure in obtaining any little anecdotes of my ancestors. You may remember the inquiries I made among the remains of my relations when you were with me in England, and the journey I took for that purpose. Now imagining it may be equally agreeable to you to know the circumstances of my life, many of which you are yet unacquainted with, and expecting a week's uninterrupted leisure in my present country retirement, I sit down to write them for you. It breaks off uh, because the revolution intervenes and he is, is um, interested in other things. Uh, but he's in France in 1784 uh, and he gets these letters from two friends of his, Abel James and Benjamin Vaughan, uh, urging him to continue. They, they have discovered that this memoir exists and they urge him to continue writing because they think he'd be such a great role model for the youth of the now what's now the U.S., the new nation. And so that's where the second part comes in. He says he writes it on the advice and encouragement of these two correspondents. Uh, And that's 1784. Your history is so remarkable that if you do not give it, somebody else will certainly give it, and perhaps so as nearly to do as much harm as your own management of the thing might do good. But your biography will not merely teach self-education, but the education of the wise man. 
Show them, sir, how much is to be done, both to sons and fathers, and invite them all, wise men, to become like yourself, and other men to become wise. The writers of the letters that he includes at the beginning of part two, they want Franklin to keep writing because they think that he's this model of industry and frugality and temperance. Uh, but part of what they're missing is that what he might be a role model of is manipulating surfaces and appearances. In other words, what is it that he models? Is it character in the old-fashioned sense of moral substance? Or is it character in the sense of putting up a public front, uh, of a surface appearance, of role-playing, like character in a book, like a flat printed character on a page? What Franklin, I think, realizes coming out of all of his experience with Franklin, you have to realize, Franklin knows print. He's been, uh, he was apprenticed to his brother at 12. His brother is a printer in Boston. He's an apprentice there. And his whole life, his main business is as a printer. And what he knows is that through the manipulation of surface characters, one can gain credit. These two terms are always together in Franklin's autobiography, character and credit, character and credit. That you can solicit credit, belief, belief and faith, and maybe more financial benefits by putting up a good character. In order to secure my credit and character as a tradesman, I took care not only to be in reality industrious and frugal, but to avoid all appearances of the contrary. I dressed plainly, I was seen at no places of idle diversion, I never went out of fishing or shooting. Thus being esteemed an industrious, thriving young man, and paying daily for what I bought, the merchants who imported stationery solicited my custom, others proposed supplying me with books, and I went on swimmingly. You might suggest that in the autobiography he's doing the same thing. He's soliciting credit through manipulation of character, characters on the page, and through painting his character in a particular way. You know, Franklin understands that writing, that print, can have serious effects in the creation of self or reputation, which for Franklin maybe is the self-same thing. And print does, to him, offer opportunities to remake the self. And you see this in multiple moments, in multiple ways. First off, print allows you to make yourself into new characters. And Franklin, throughout the autobiography, talks about these instances where he writes himself into new characters. Silence do good. He, he, his first appearance in print is as Mrs. Silence do good. Uh, he also does it with Poor Richard, the Poor Richard's Almanac. In 1732, I first published my almanac under the name of Richard Saunders. It was continued by me about 25 years, commonly called Poor Richard's Almanac. I endeavored to make it both entertaining and useful, and it accordingly came to be in such demand that I reaped considerable profit from it, vending annually near 10,000. There are famous moments in it where Franklin describes his life in textual terms. Uh, and you do get the sense of one's life as being a book. It's present from the very beginning of the autobiography. Were it offered to my choice, I should have no objection to a repetition of the same life from its beginning, only asking the advantage authors have in a second edition to correct some faults of the first. So would I, if I might, besides correcting the faults, change some sinister accidents and events of it for other more favorable. But though this were denied, I should still accept the offer. However, since such a repetition is not to be expected, the thing most like living one's life over again seems to be a recollection of that life. And to make that recollection more durable as possible, the putting it down in writing. I think he sees print in two ways on this. Print as a model of the idea that you can 
a character in the sense of letter formation, right? That you can perfect your characters. You know, he even talks sometimes about copying out letters to make them uh, to do a better job with handwriting. That there's a model here of coming into a textual self or a textual perfection, a form, a formal perfection of character. It was about that time that I conceived of the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wished to live without committing any fault at any time. I made a little book in which I allotted a page for each of the virtues. I ruled each page with red ink so as to have seven columns, one for each day of the week. I might mark a little black spot for every fault I found upon examination to have been committed respecting virtue upon that day. These names of virtues with their precepts were 1. Temperance. Eat not to dullness, drink not to elevation. 2. Silence. Speak not but what may benefit others or yourself. Avoid trifling conversation. 4. Resolution. Resolve to perform what you ought. Perform without fail what you resolve. 6. Industry. Lose no time. Be always employed in something useful. Cut off all unnecessary actions. 10. Cleanliness. Tolerate no uncleanness in body, clothes, or habitation. 12. Chastity. Rarely use venery, but for health or offspring. Never to dullness, weakness, or the injury of your own or another's peace or reputation. 13. Humility. Imitate Jesus and Socrates. The odd thing, or one of the odd things about the autobiography, is that if we want to see Franklin as devoted to constructing his character in print, or to establishing his character in his own text, well, why does he never finish the autobiography, much less publish it? He's still writing, as I say, on his deathbed, and you have to ask why. Here's this man, he's able to take on and complete uh, an almost superhuman number of tasks in his life, on different, in different veins as well. He's He's a prolifically productive person, but he won't finish his autobiography. Why is that? One possibility that you could raise is, um, if he does see his life as so intimately tied into text, to finish the autobiography is equivalent to dying. And you could ask, is it that he too well appreciates the power of print that makes him hesitate at the thought of finishing the autobiography. Is this his reluctance to commit himself to the final durable version of himself, to fix himself in this final character form? It's all well and good when it's Silence Do Good or Poor Richard, but to say this is Ben Franklin for him, to, to commit himself to that textual character, I think perhaps that's what happens when he doesn't finish it. By my rambling digressions, I perceive myself to be grown old. I used to write more methodically. But one does not dress for private company as for a public ball. Tis perhaps only negligence. To return, I continued thus employed in my father's business for two years. That is, till I was 12 years old. And my brother John, who was bred to that business, having left... Entry number three, life-logging in blank verse. Notes from a fictional self. 
Stegner fellow Kirsten Anderson imagines a life into poetry. Fellow Stegner and friend of the show, Liz Bradfield, interviews. My father's second wife. Drinking egg creams, eating malt balls, she was solid Swedish stock, an athlete for the ages with a stake in her mouth, iron pills sized for cattle in her pockets. She called herself apprentice to the Protestant workhorses, but only our mother cleaned other people's houses. In Massachusetts, we moved to the speed of pure ambition. My brother and I were adrift on floating stones. Our grain-fed hearts bloomed red. We missed our mother, whose mind was overdrawn and bloodless. Gloria followed us around with the phone in her hands. She backpedaled toward the after-party, fed carrots to out-of-towners. In winter, she was seated in the sunroom, shrink-wrapping jellied fruit for her holiday display. She held her long hair back from the hot water in her teacup. She said to turn the heat up in the storm. Gloria on Gloria I was the can-kicker, wide strider, champion of girls, a head-turner, rare expert on chicken breasts, fluent in the romance languages. I was the dumper, not the dumpy, head bird in the migration V, most famous of the unfamous. I knocked at the door of the world. Do, do you think there's an age of self that's more interesting to write about? I, I just, I'm always fascinated by poems that gesture toward childhood because I feel like that's the moment in time when we are the most effective at, at being witness to things. Mm. Um, so childhood, I guess, is the age that I could give you that would be the one where I feel, I just, I feel really comfortable sitting down there and writing. Family court. Remember the beatings after the streetlights went out, the small change, the coffee cups, my Nikes kicked up on the bar stool. Remember the dog who was thrown down the stairs, the white veils in the wind at our first communion, the blood in the wine, the salt on the meat, and Gloria rolling joints on the changing table. Remember the ice cream, the ointments, the slow smile of our mother at the foot of the stairs, the split lip, the sirens, the Stevie Wonder. Remember the day they took us out from our house, the government papers they waved in her face and the low, paneled ceiling of the courtroom. Remember the broken chain hanging from the backyard swing, the chocolate cake she set down on the counter, the cool leaves beneath our feet in the fall. Remember that what we once were will always be in us, the dark rock pattern of our childhood, which is gold and coal and cannot be mined. Bad behavior. Years ago, I was granted a pass to participate in bad behavior. I was instructed by a short list of my mother's youngest boyfriends. They gave me paper and blade, red meat on a bone, taught me to pepper my beloved with bitter-ended questions. I think of all the men my mother packed away in ice, stored in sawdust, her shoeboxes stuffed with photographs, love letters marked with prehistoric dates. At the college, I sit behind the dean's desk and catalog quotations. 
Boys who are schooled privately begin to look at me, and I am always fearful, laying the groundwork to forestall eventually seeming a fool. Entire in my body, I am only myself, little pockets of a hometown hanging all along my bones. It's an interesting relationship between the intimacy of the poems and the craft of making a poem, which is mm-hmm. just what you were talking about, mm-hmm. about how the truth becomes at cer- a certain point um, in service to the poem itself. So do you ever find that your own um, perspective on that kernel changes through writing the poem? Hmm. I want to give like a really virtuous answer and say yes, but to be completely honest, it's all, it's just, it's so pleasing to me. It's always just, it's thrilling to isolate the kernel and to give it dramatic lighting. In terms of, um, do I learn, do I have a different point of view or like, do I emerge with some sort of sense I didn't have before? Um, I don't really know. Work. I craft together half-truths in the life where I live like a rat, dumping bathroom soaps from the party into my over-the-shoulder purse after a full week of work in the finance district where I pretend to be the girl who can always be trusted. I translate the sealed interviews of the Argentinian bank tellers, and each week the district attorney is ushered to my door. A junior aide waves from behind a lacquered desk. It is my sign to call the caterers who roll their silver serving carts along the oriental rugs. I pocket what is left of the spread of turkey sandwiches, slip the gold-rimmed drinking glasses into my file drawers. I am invited to watch the World Cup with the businessmen from Brazil when Mr. Winter stands to wave me from my desk. He gives me a slow-motion wink and tells the men I'm a good worker. He moves to pat me on the back. Someone says I'm a good kid. How do those poems engage you in particular? They seem, the Hmm. ones you read are such a set. They're from such a time. So what is it about that place and space that keeps drawing you back? Hmm. That feels and continues to feel like the most relevant physical and emotional landscape for me as a poet. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't really learned how to write in the present just yet. I would love to figure that one out. Mm -hmm. Um, But for me, the whole act is always me turning around and writing. What else about these poems do you think you want to talk about, say... Hmm. In relationship to the idea of seeing oneself change or just in the relationship to the idea of um, poems as a record yet not record of self. I think that hmm. that's really interesting because I think a lot of people who read the eye will assume immediately that it is mm-hmm. true. There's that sense of truth in poetry as soon as you get the eye, that it's a very accurate, factual, factually accurate versus emotionally accurate, which right. I think are two different mm-hmm. definitions. Yeah, that's... Yeah, I think you're completely right. But I just think that that's that's the only way that I know how to write about the self and myself and experiences, past experiences, is by creating a little bit of distance and a lot of fiction. It's also the only way I know how to do it interestingly. Mm. Um, 
if I was just true right down to the last detail about things that I'm interested to write about and to read about, I, God, they would be really boring poems, you know. One lie. Tell me one lie. Any variation on how the loose bones of my face elude comparison, then bring the morning glories to my mouth. Praise my $9 blouse from the clothing chain store and take away my working boots. When I wear them, I am sitting at the receptionist's desk while the accountants call my name. Outside are the oxidized domes of the Orthodox churches, the tin ceilings of Brooklyn, the female chandeliers. I never heard the buzzsaw racing us to this point, and for months it's been dust all around us, the bad taste of those words that always fill my mouth. Day-dweller that I am, homebound and looking out the windows, sometimes I go so far as to plead with him. Say it, I beg, my legs crossed at the foot of the bed. record right now as she is rappelling down next to a waterfall. Um, this is Anna speaking, her trusty roommate. Hi, it's Sara. It's 4.30. Um, I just rappelled down this big climb thingy. We're going to go eat some light. Like, like, we are currently eating light. Like, <laughs> mm, mm, oh, God. Oh, no, I don't oh, think I like it. So, oh, 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 I love it. I love it. Give me yours. Mm. Entry number four, note to self, look back at this and laugh. The diary entry is a funny kind of note to self. Funny because it's very likely from a time you'd rather forget. But forgotten or not, your old diary entries are you, at least a part of you. And if you don't like that self, there is one thing you can do to try to get rid of it. For our last story, Dan Hirsch visits a public reading of private writing and returns with new insights into the nature of self or maybe just some dark high school poetry and a postal service cover, or maybe both. Cleaning out my room the summer before college, I discovered a big box filled with keepsakes I had collected in the last four years of high school. Among the scraps of old birthday cards and postcards, I found at least three journals completely filled with writing that I had done during my freshman year of high school. I had forgotten that these even existed. Of course, I read through them all. Pages and pages of inner turmoil manifested into writing. I had forgotten what life at 14 had been like, everything that went through my mind then. How strange that only three years later, I felt so completely removed from that person that I had forgotten all the hours of writing he had done pouring his soul out into the pages of his notebooks. Recently, some friends of mine took part in a reading of sorts at their house Kairos, one of Stanford's co-ops. But it wasn't just any old reading. They were reading from writing they had done in high school. 
angry poetry rants against parents' breakup laments to share with their entire house. As a former high school journal keeper myself, I had to go. Twenty or thirty people gathered in the house's living room and waited eagerly for the embarrassment to spring forth. Shy at first, unwilling to resurrect their high school selves, they eventually took turns bearing old angst to a room full of people. This is junior Susan Norse reading from an online journal she kept in high school. Mood, empty. <laughs> Music, something in the way by Nirvana. <laughs> Have you ever had the feeling that you are no longer living, but simply surviving? That you are a chunk of meaningless matter that simply consumes the resources of the earth and gives nothing back but waste? You are alive in a sense. You breathe, your heart pumps black blood shooting through I talked to Susan a few weeks later about what it was like reading this in front of her entire house. ...at the realization that this is all there is to life and all there ever will be. So this was my sophomore year in high school, and it was, I guess, a pretty low point in high school. I had just broken up with my boyfriend, yada, yada, yada. I'm not sure what it was about this particular day. Um, this was probably my most depressing entry in my journal. Um, I actually, on the next day, go back and it was just like, oh my god, I can't believe I wrote that. So even then I realized it was a little bit ridiculous. Longing was still there. At least I would be more than an empty shell. <laughs> I suppressed the pain, so now there's nothing. Nothing at all. So you say now that... Even then, you thought it was kind of ridiculous. Could you ever imagine yourself when you wrote it, reading it in front of a room full of people? Oh, no. Oh, no, not at all. I don't know. Like, I feel very dissociated from the type of, from the person who wrote that story uh, and that entry, just because my personality was so different then and my situation was so different in high school. But I don't really even feel like the same person. So I feel like... Um, coming back and reading it now, I'm reading the diary entry of someone else. How many people you've altered, for better or for worse. Once your small amount of time is up, you turn simply into a rotting shell. You become food for bugs. A purpose more meaningful than anything you ever accomplished in life. This is senior Margot Isman singing a song she wrote at 14. But I'm actually going to sing a song that I wrote yes. when I was all of 14. It's called Lullaby to Myself. And you'll have to forgive me, I had to sort of reconstitute the chords because it's been eight years. Yeah. <laughs> 
This is a little strange for me because I actually went to high school with Margot. I knew her when she was writing songs like this. She joined my conversation with Susan in her room at Kairos. But I actually don't remember the, the specific person or thing I was writing about, but I remember the feeling and I was, I was feeling like I had just been through so much and um, I had really, I felt like I was, I was too young to feel all the feelings I felt. I remember feeling that way, that, that I really had lost my innocence and somehow I just, there was something that was gone that was, I was never going to get back, which of course as a 14 year old is hilarious. <laughs> I was a little stunned by how much people laughed. People were reading confessions filled with sadness and deep existential questioning. And while I did laugh along with everyone else, part of me thought that it was a betrayal. A betrayal of our past selves and the very idea of keeping a private journal. We were laughing at someone else's personal pain, even if that someone else was from the past. Well, it's just that I guess that when we're younger, we think that everything we've gone through is the biggest that it will ever be. We feel like there has been so much in life and that how could there possibly be anything more? And then we go beyond it and we come into college when obviously like our worlds have been blown open. And you look back and you think of how naive we were then. And it's just funny because, I don't know, if you think back to, I guess, just how stupid we were, funny to laugh at that. <laughs> well, I think, I think anything might be funny five years later um, because we're caricatures of ourselves. Like we, I don't know, I think especially when you're going through all of these emotions of adolescence and stuff, you, you try to craft a personality for yourself and that is really, it's humorous to look back on because it's so overblown and so um, it's a caricature. So I wonder if that will be true. I mean, I, I thought about this on that night that I wonder if we would look back on ourselves now in five years and be like, oh my god, I can't believe what I was like in college. June 2nd, uh, this would be 2004. <laughs> oh no. Prom was last night and I'm f***ing depressed. <laughs> this is senior Sam Ermey. He read from a journal he kept during his senior year in high school in which he fell deeply in love with a pretty girl named Kate. Unfortunately, Kate did not return Sam's feelings. I never got to dance with Kate. In all, there were only two slow songs of the evening. Only one and a half, really, because the second one wasn't very slow. <laughs> Both times, she just left the dance floor fast, and I couldn't get to her. <clears throat> the first time, I almost did. I called after her and even managed touch her right elbow with my right index finger. She didn't notice, and I uh, was off and running. I ended up dancing and then grinding with Here's Sam when, when I talked to him in his current girlfriend's room at Kairos. I mean, we already heard some, some doozies of, you know, 17-year-old journals, which, you know, I chuckled at when they were read, and uh, 
then sort of reading it out loud, I realized, oh my God, you know, mine isn't that different from these other people's, except that, you know, I lived mine. Perfect. And her back still had 10 lines from her crew uni. I wasn't sure if she was trying it all to avoid me or if it was just my imagination when she never seemed to stay in the same circle. I guess when I agreed to read these things um, in front of everybody, I didn't really expect, I wasn't sure, you know, what to expect. And for some reason, I kind of, kind of expected everyone to like, you know, be totally, be totally there with me, you know, however, you know, four years ago, and just to be totally devastated. And of course, you know, they weren't there with me four years ago, exactly. To the after party, she wore a pink striped tank top and jeans. I kept trying to see what room she was in for some reason, which I couldn't quite give. Other, I couldn't give other than that she was too beautiful not to look at. I wanted to talk to her. It was too shy, too smart, too unsure of what she would think of me. Brought my guitar and tried to play some Nick Drake songs, but it was too nice. <laughs> <nice. laughs> I mean, I found myself laughing along with everyone just involuntarily. I'd never laughed at this before. Um, but, you know, it was funny. I love her stupidly against both of our interests. I love her so much and nothing will even come of it. I can see it, but I try not to believe it. Even when I do see it, it doesn't help me. I can look back and say, what idiocy, but still, in the moment, I'm in love. Jesus way she smiled at me as I walked into the atrium that night. Just enough to get my hopes up. And now, all I can do is hope for divine intervention and call her and ask if she'll talk to me over coffee or something. God, I feel awful. As a teenager, you've got to work through a lot of complicated and confusing feelings. In order to grow up, you've got to move on from those. For my friends at Kairos, reading those thoughts aloud helped them perhaps finally get over any of the lingering emotions of adolescence. Yeah, I guess I like to pretend that I'm not in any way related to that person anymore. So maybe by thinking it's funny and maybe by sharing it in this sort of environment, it's a way to detach yourself further from that and pretend that, hey, look at how much I've changed. In some ways, reading it out loud was sort of like a final act of, of letting go of it. Um, you know, putting it down on the page is like the first act of letting go of the experience. Um, so that's one letting go and then time, time heals and smooths over and all that stuff. And then sort of releasing it into the, the public domain as it were, you know, there's only, there's only one person on earth who, who wrote that down as me, but now there are, you know, 20 or 30 people who have heard it. And so it's sort of the lasting version of Sam's prom night is now held. You know, I'm only a minority shareholder in that now. What you were saying before, I felt a little protective of my 14-year-old self. Like, I didn't want her to be hurt by it. But, you know, she doesn't exist anymore, so. And I actually um, ended my high school journal notebook with a note to my future self, which was, look back on all of this and laugh, which obviously has happened. <laughs> yeah. Kind of free after having shared it. You can sort of let go of that past self. You know. Well, 
I don't know if I can do that, but you know, in some sense, I have, yeah. But at the same time, I mean, the emotions were really authentic, and I think one of the things that I felt when I was going back and reconstituting the song and trying to write the chords again so I could perform it was basically that I felt the emotions all over again. Like I felt sad and I felt this feeling of of having lost something that you know maybe belonged to me as a child that didn't belong to me anymore as an adolescent. Though you might forget or feel detached from the person who wrote an online journal, or the person who wanted so badly to be Ani DeFranco, or the one who can remember which part of which finger touched the girl of his dreams, those past selves stay with you whether you like it or not. I had completely forgotten what I wrote in my freshman year journals, but when I came back to them my freshman year in college, that person was there again, vivid and alive and an undeniable part of me. Laugh at it throw it away, or burn it. The notebook with the lyrics copied of some bittersweet pop song is still floating around somewhere. Same goes to the awkward and sensitive kid who thought that song was talking directly to him and his own heartbreak. From such great heights, calm down now, they'll say, but everything looks perfect from far away, calm down now. But we'll stay. It is eleven fifteen. I'm going to read for a little while before I go to bed. Okay, it's about uh, 11.25. That was a busy day. Um, I guess that's it. That's my life vlogging experience. Okay, good night. Today's show was produced by Dan Hirsch, Jonah Willingans, and myself. Thanks to Kirsten Anderson, Liz Bradfield, Xiaoyun Chen, and Judith Richardson for all their help. Thanks to Ariel Lasky and Daniel McDougal for technical support. Thanks to Kairos House, its staff, and all its readers. But especially Susan Norris, Margot Isman, and Sam Ermey. And a big thank you to Zach, whose last name I'll probably butcher so I won't try to pronounce, for lending his voice as Benjamin Franklin. For their original musical contributions, I'd like to thank George Pritzker, Mark DeRiso, Gabe Rodriguez, and the members of Boomsnake, and Daniel Stewart. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communications Program, Stanford's Continuing Studies, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. That was Note to Self, and this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm Charlie Mintz.